Hey, y'all. It's good to be uh, back with you again. Um, just a brief introduction if I didn't get a chance to meet you last time. Uh, my name's Doyle, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, my wife, Kendra, and my two boys, uh, like good Presbyterians, hanging out in the back row. Um, but uh, we uh, live on Camp Pendleton. I'm actually in the Navy, and uh, it's the Navy birthday. So if you know a sailor or you are one, uh, happy birthday, and tell your sailor friends happy birthday uh, as well. Uh, but it's good to, really good to be here. We're thankful for you uh, and thankful for the work that you uh, and the ministry that you have here in San Diego, and it's always a joy for us to come down uh, and see you. So uh, with that being said, open your Bible or poke at it when, on your favorite digital gadget uh, to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Verses 7 through 13, Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. Last time I was here, we looked at Revelation chapter 1. Uh, and in Revelation chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is very much present uh, with his people. And he's very much present with his people, wielding his power. But he's wielding his power in love because he's caring for his bride, for his church. And it's out of that same love, it's out of that same power, it's out of that same authority that he writes these seven letters to the church. Now, sometimes these words are quite challenging because that's what the congregation needed to hear. In this case, the words are quite comforting because that's what this little church in Philadelphia, not the Philadelphia here, but another Philadelphia, that, that is what they needed to hear. They needed to hear their king speak to them out of power but also in love. So if you would, uh, follow along with me as uh, I read Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. I would ask that you pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. It's absolutely true and it's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this portion of your word. May 
the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be found pleasing. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So my wife Kendra there is hanging out in the back row. And before I met Kendra, I knew of Kendra. My friend Tim told me that she was the most beautiful girl that he had ever met. And so after meeting Kendra, I agreed. But I knew immediately that she was out of my league. Uh, So we became friends. We became friends and I resigned myself to familiar territory, the friend zone. The, oh, he's nice and he's lovable. He's just this little teddy bear and I love him like a brother zone. I was appreciated but I kind of felt overlooked. But then something strange happened. Kendra actually took an interest in me. So for months, she would swing by my cubicle at work, and she would make sure she would say goodbye before she left for the end of the day. I thought that was really nice. And then she started leaving little notes on my, the windshield of my truck as she was leaving the parking lot. But I didn't pick up on the signals because I couldn't see how her love could belong to me. Because of past disappointments, I've had that conversation with people. It's not you, it's me. When you know, when they say that, it's really you, right? Because of past disappointments, I couldn't pick on the signals that her love could actually belong to me. Because of my own personal fear, I couldn't pick up on the signals. Because of a sense of inferiority that I could not shake. I was just used to being Overlooked. I could not believe that the affection promised to me with all these little signals actually belonged to me. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. That the disappointments, the fear, the doubt, the failures create an unshakable insecurity that make you feel overlooked and maybe even unloved. Have you ever felt that way with your relationship with God? Do you find it hard to believe that the affection promised to you will actually find you and belong to you? And maybe it's not your personal insecurities that make you feel inferior, overlooked, and unloved. Maybe it's life that's made, left you feeling that way. There's a British author and poet, playwright, his name is Lem Sisse. If I'm saying his name wrong, I'm sorry. But he wrote an award-winning play called Something Dark. And really, it was about his search for love that would not only find him, but that would ultimately belong to him because he grew up as a child of the state. And as as an infant, he was put in foster care. And for the first 11 years of his life, he lived with his family who promised to adopt him one day. And then at the age of 11, they turned their backs on him and kicked him back into the foster care system. And he found himself basically in an orphanage where he would bounce around in the system in different places. And he was devastated because the only family that he had never, ever known had walked away from him. And then one day uh, in his orphanage, I think he was in five or so different orphanages or foster homes. One day in the orphanage, he decided to drool, drool? dribble a a little paint on the roof uh, and the colors were uh, red, yellow, and green because he was from Africa and those were the colors of Africa and it was just a minor offense but the orphanage threw him into juvenile prison 
because there was no family to inquire about the injustice. There was no one to claim him, no one to pay the measly little debt of the damage that he had caused to the roof of the orphanage. No one to prove that the affection promised to him actually belonged to him. And so if you've seen him or heard him, he's actually become a quite angry man. And he's angry at God because he defines the root of his anger as the result of always feeling overlooked, the result of a heart that was constantly looking for love, real, lasting, steadfast love, but was always seemingly coming up empty. It's this kind of frustration that can worm its way into our own hearts too, because when life seems unfair, we're tempted to believe that the promises of the gospel are actually too good to be true or too distant from us to do any good. Or we're left feeling that in the search for security, we're always going to come up empty, feeling overlooked, insignificant, and forgotten. And this was kind of the dilemma that was facing the church in Philadelphia to which this letter was written. The city of Philadelphia suffered from fear of being overlooked and forgotten. They were constantly fearing that they were being overlooked. The town was in desperate need of feeling important, a reality that's reflected by the fact that they kept renaming themselves after the latest and greatest ruler of the time because they thought, well, if we name ourselves after whoever's ruling us, then he's going to throw a bunch of money at us and we become a more important and significant and glitzy and glamorous kind of town. And they were afraid of that ultimately they'd be forgotten because in AD 17 they were devastated by a massive earthquake that threatened to literally wipe them off the face of the map. And people were so afraid that an earthquake would hit them again that they refused to live in town within the original city limits. That was the city of Philadelphia. They were struggling with the sense of being overlooked and unloved. And the church was facing the same thing. It mirrored the atmosphere of the city. They seemed to struggle with feeling like they measured up. They seemed to struggle with the feeling that the affection promised to them in the gospel actually belonged to them, which caused them to live in fear. Like many churches in the day, they faced persecution. They lived as a minority culture in a world that didn't quite get to them. They lived as a minority culture that was all openly hostile to the truth. It sounds a little similar to me. And they lived with a sense of doubt of being overlooked and forgotten by God because they were shut out of the synagogue. They were forced to live in isolation and ex- uh, exclusion because those whose opinions at that time carried the most weight, the religious and spiritual weight, they, these people whose, weight, whose voice mattered most, they said that this little group of Christians didn't measure up. In fact, they declared these, this little group of Christians to be liars, blasphemers, outcasts. They said, you're unloved, we don't want you. And so they were a church of little strength, a faithful, patient, little church, unpopular outwardly unimpressive and maybe imperfect in their faith. But Jesus writes to them to assure them that no church and no believer who follows Jesus by faith is insignificant or forgotten or unloved 
or overlooked. For he has loved them and he has claimed them. And although there are times when it's hard to see and maybe even harder to feel, the love promised to them has found them and actually belongs to them. Why? Not because they're awesome, but because Jesus has secured it for them. And also because in the economy of the kingdom of Christ, there's always going, more going on than meets the eye. And so he tells them that they are never overlooked. We are never overlooked for Christ has perfectly secured God's love. Look again at verses seven through eight. It says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Some have said that these verses refer to opportunities for missions or evangelism because Paul uses a phrase about open doors to preach the gospel. But I think this is ultimately talking about something more significant, maybe. That's hard to say what's more significant. Anyway, I think this is talking about salvation, about God's love, the security of God's love. This is about the strength and security of Christ to secure our salvation. For there's another sense that the term doors appears in the New Testament. Jesus in John 10 says that he is the door and that whoever enters the fold through him will be saved. That even though the wolves howl, or around here the coyotes, even though the wolves howl and the lions roar, and though we are just little helpless little sheep, we are secure because Jesus guards the gate. And then in Matthew 25 and in Luke 13, Jesus tells parables involving doors that are being opened and shut and based on the people's willingness to listen to the gospel and therefore their readiness on the coming day of judgment. And so while this letter might secondarily be about evangelism and mission, I think it's primarily about the authority of Christ, about his ability and power to open doors, to secure God's love, to keep the door to God's love open despite appearances to the contrary. Because this is an illusion, maybe even a quote of a passage from Isaiah 22. And in that passage, Isaiah refers to a man named Eliakim, who was the steward of the house and the palace of King Hezekiah. And so he was given the authority of the king and as a, uh, uh, had that authority symbolized by a robe and a sash and most impressively maybe a key that was placed Upon his shoulders, it was like a badge, like a sheriff's deputy might wear a badge. And that key represented and proved to everyone that when the steward acted, when he made a decision, he did so with the authority of the king. And it was an authority that allowed him to open doors, actually and metaphorically metaphorically throughout the kingdom, He could open doors to whomever he wanted and close doors to whomever he wanted. And no one could open what he could shut or shut what he had opened. This is a picture of Jesus. For unlike those he calls the synagogue of Satan who are liars, he's the holy one. He's the true one. 
He is the true Messiah, and he holds the keys of King David. He opens and shuts heaven's doors, for the authority and the government of the kingdom of heaven rests on his shoulders, and no one can shut the doors he has opened or reject those people that he has welcomed. And so to a small church, to a weak and seemingly insignificant group of Christians, to the outcasts who've been told that their message has no meaning in their culture, who have been told that they themselves are not welcome and have no place in the synagogue, and who are told they cannot be loved by the people whose opinion mattered most to them, Jesus says, I have not overlooked you. You are loved. You are welcomed. No one has the right to shut you out, for the authority of the kingdom rests on me, and I have opened the door of salvation to you, and what I have opened, no one can shut. What's astounding is what's true of them is true of us. We are never overlooked or insignificant. You need not fear that the love promised to you will never belong to you. For in the economy of the kingdom, as I said, there's more going on than meets the eyes. Although you may not see it, believe it, or feel it, you are loved. For Christ has fought for you. He has conquered the enemy for you. Your sin has been paid for. Your life has been redeemed. You have been welcomed. He has opened the door of heaven to you, and your welcome is secure. And because of him, nothing can shut you out of the Father's love. Not even your own doubts. Not even your own insecurities. Not present circumstances circumstances, excuse me, or the political climate, not even your own self-loathing or the disapproving glare of other people. Nothing can shut you out of the Father's love. You are not overlooked because Christ has secured the Father's love for you. He also tells this little church and he tells us that we are never overlooked for Christ rises to defend us against our accusers. He answers our accusers. When I was in high school, I used to play this little game with my best friend, John. And so we would, while the teacher had her back turned, writing on the board, we would try to see how many times we could throw a paper wad back and forth, right? And so he was in the back, uh, or I was in the back and he was in the front or something like that, I can't remember now. But... Um, some other people got involved in the game. And so we were seeing how many times the students or we could throw this paper wad while she was writing something up on the board and then we would tuck it in the page. So I threw the paper wad and it overshot my target and it landed right between her legs. And so she wheeled around like, who was that? Right? And so I turned around too, like, who threw that? I don't know who threw that. And I dimed out my best friend, John. Right? I accused my best friend, John, and he would have gotten in trouble. I mean, it would have been nothing. I mean, we were good kids, but, you know, he would have gotten in trouble if I didn't ultimately fess up, right? It's a silly example. I, though he was innocent, I was his accuser, and he would have taken the fall. But I want to ask you, who are your accusers? The culture sometimes calls us bigots. 
We're intolerant, we're naive, we're peddlers of Bronze Age absurdities. But who falsely pins labels on you, making you feel unlovable? That stings a little bit. Who points out every imperfection and failure that you know to be true, making you feel like a fraud? That stings a little bit more. Or maybe you, maybe you're your own worst accuser, convincing yourself that you deserve to be overlooked, you deserve to be forgotten, and that stings the most because your voice is the most significant voice in your life. And so with that in mind, look at verses, uh, the second part of verse 8 and verse 9. Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and you, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is beautiful. For this is a picture of Jesus answering every fear of this little church in Philadelphia. But even more than this, he's vindicating their every hope. For he is breathing these words over them with other voices in their ears. These other voices from the synagogue of Satan saying, God doesn't love you because you've believed a lie. You've placed your hope in a false messiah. You've cut yourself off from the true people of God. So with those accusers ringing in their ear, Jesus says, forget about them. Listen to me. I love you. And one day they will have to shut their accusing lips and admit they were wrong because they will see my love for you. In fact, you will see my love for you. And to silence these voices, Jesus is pointing us to another passage from the book of Isaiah. He's pointing us to Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 60. Write them down, check it out later. He says in these uh, two passages, the Gentiles and the enemies of the people of God, where every oppressor and everyone who despises the people of God and everyone who tempts God's people to think that they're unloved or unwanted or that their salvation is insecure and everyone who tempts them to think that God is not their God and they are not his people, where every accuser will be forced to bow down before God's people and they will confess that, hey, we had it wrong. Surely God is with you and surely there is no other God. And this is a less than subtle dig at the unbelieving Jews in the city of Philadelphia because they claimed to be the righteous ones, but he lumps them in with the unbelieving pagans pictured in the book of Isaiah. For although they claimed to be the true defenders of orthodoxy, they were actually telling lies. And because of their lack of faith, they are not part of God's people. Instead, he really levels them and says, you're part of the synagogue of Satan. And they will bow down with the rest of the unbelieving world when the fears of God's people are answered, when the hopes of God's people are vindicated, when they will bow and say, hey, we were wrong. God does love you. To put it another way, in a contest between those who tell us that we are believing a myth and that we cannot be, belo- cannot be loved by God, in a contest between the word of the world and the word of Christ, Christ and his word wins. 
And one day what seems hidden now will be plain for everyone to see. And so let me ask you again, what voice, what accusation is ringing in your ears that makes you feel insecure? What makes you feel unloved? Remember in the kingdom of Christ, there's more going on than meets the eye. And with those echoing in your ears, chew on these words from Jesus in this letter. When you stand by faith in Christ, you stand in the arms of a strong Savior whose love and whose love for you endures forever and his love silences those who accuse you and all the ways that you even accuse yourself. And one day we will all stand before him, bow before him, and you and the whole world will know that despite your doubts, despite your fears, despite your insecurities, despite the fact that so many times you felt overlooked, we will know that he has loved you all along. Because he's not going to parade out in that day a, a list of your failures. He's not going to parade out a list of your sin. If you look in verse 10 later on, those have been dealt with. Because he went to the cross, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty has been paid and he's clothed you in righteousness. On that day, he's not going to point out your faults but he's going to make a full display of uh, the extent of his love and he's going to welcome you, even you, even me. But the amazing thing is even though we're looking forward to that day where all of our hopes about the reality of Christ's love are ultimately gonna be reality, the amazing thing is he loves you that way right now. The security that he's won and the silence of his accusers, of your accusers, is just as real now as it is then. He's opened the door. And when there's a sense in which he's never going to shut you out, he's closed you in, in the safety of his love. So he says, I've secured your love. You're not overlooked. I've silenced your accusers. You are not overlooked or forgotten. And he says, finally, you are never overlooked because I've claimed you as my very own. You have a new identity. Look again at verses 11 through 13. He says, I am coming soon. There's some comfort. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and I will write on him my own new name. In Jesus, we learn not only that we should not despise the day of small things, even when we think we are the small things, but we learn that we are never overlooked because he shows us in this passage that the kingdom of God is unique from any other kingdom in this world. It's what Tim Keller calls the upside-down kingdom, a kingdom which, in which the sorry, overlooked by the world are actually loved, recognized, satisfied, and welcomed because the kingdom reflects the glory and the character of its king 
who emptied himself of his glory. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He was king, and yet he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself servant of all. Though he triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but by uh, sacrificial service. He won by losing everything, and through him a day is coming, the day of his return, when those who appear small, when those who appear weak, when those who appear beaten, and those who appear defeated, those who have no place in the culture, those who are hated by the culture, are ultimately welcomed into the kingdom and are welcomed into God's presence to such an extent that they're not just welcomed into the temple, they become the temple, the pillars of the temple. Indispensably placed. And because he has claimed us as his very own, when we cling to him by faith, no matter how small that faith might be, we are given a new identity. We are marked by the name of God. And this is a point Jesus doesn't want us to miss, so he says it three times. He says, you're going to be marked by the name of my God. We are his cherished possession. He can't turn his back on his cherished possession. We are marked by the name of the city of my God. We are his people, born in Zion, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, I'm gonna mark you with my own name. He can't turn his back on us because we are his bride and he is the faithful, perfectly faithful husband. In the office, when you put food in the refrigerator, food in the refrigerator, the community refrigerator in the break room or wherever that happens to be, what do you do? You put your name on it. You clearly mark, this is Doyle's nobody else touch. It's a sign that whatever that happens to be, that piece of leftover birthday cake from the party of last week or whatever it happens to be, that belongs to you. And the enjoyment of it and the delight of it belongs to you. And so in this passage, we learn not to despise our smallness or doubt that the promised love of God actually belongs to us because Christ has claimed us. He's marked us with his name. We belong to him. And because we belong to him, we belong to the Father. And to him belongs the enjoyment and the delight of having us in his kingdom, and claiming us as his bride. And he's not going to give up that right. So this is our confidence. Though you may be a small thing, you matter. So I don't even know if this is still popular anymore, but when my boys were younger, they liked this TV show called The World of Gumball. And it's actually a clever little show, The World of Gumball, and they always have some sort of song that's created. And so they sing the, in one episode of The World of Gumball, they sing the planet song. I'm not going to sing it because the words are really fast and I'm a horrible singer, but listen to the words. This is the planet song when one of the characters is asking the universe if there's any meaning to what's going on in life. Why, has, why do I suddenly feel lost and forgotten, basically? He says, so the planets begin to sing back to this character, and it says, you're a tiny and you're tiny and you're minuscule, you're an irrelevant 
a specked. Upon the, mark, upon the dark side of that rock, you're just a measly little fleck. Your life may last a century on earth or maybe quicker, but up here, a hundred years is just a, fla- a flash, a blip, a flicker. So when you think you've got a problem, when your life is full of doubt, remember in the scheme of things, your puny little, tiny, weeny, meager, fugal, worthless, tiny, boring, foolish, pointless, minimal, wretched, gloomy, bleak, and pitiful life does not count. There's truth in that. We are small. We are small things. But obviously, the song misses something monumental. You are small. You are weak. You do doubt. But you matter. Christ has secured the Father's love for you. You are not overlooked. You matter. Christ has silenced your accusers by dealing with the promise of his sin and clothing you, of our sin, and clothing you with his righteousness. He silenced every accuser, and one day your hopes will be vindicated. You will experience in your flesh you will experience the full extent of Christ's love for you. When you stand before him and he doesn't parade out a laundry list of your sins, instead he welcomes you fully, not but like reluctantly, like eagerly, like Luke 15, the prodigal son returning home and the father jumping off the porch and running out to meet you kind of eagerly. He's given you a new identity. He's claimed you as your very, very own. It's his very, very own, if I said that wrong. You belong to him as a cherished possession. How cherished? As a perfectly, tenderly, intimately loved bride. He will never turn his back on you because you bear his name and he cannot any more turn his back on you than he can turn his back on himself. It's just simply an impossibility. So you may be feel overlooked, but you're not. As a church, you may feel small and insignificant, but you are not. Because Christ loves you. Christ is doing amazing things through you. And what can be better than a body of Christ in which Christ's love is present? Because he's present. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in your mercy, you would drive these truths deep into our hearts. Every time we doubt, we feel overlooked and insignificant. Will we remember how deeply you loved us in Christ? When we feel overwhelmed by our doubt and our fear, would you help us to remember how deeply we are loved in Christ? Would that love give us joy? Would that love give us hope? 
with that joy steady our shaky knees from time to time. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.